VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, May the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is in the producer's chair as per normal. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86. 26, well, there goes the season for the Newfoundland Growlers. They bow out in four games, or pardon me, five games, to the Florida Everblades. Fought back to make a valiant effort of it in game number five. Tied it up at five, go to OT, Florida scores about a minute in, and that's it. So, decent run, but they were playing from behind virtually the entirety of the playoffs. But that's it for the Newfoundland Growlers this year. Next season kicks off October 21st, back down at Mary Brown Center. Lots of good players on the Growlers, but sometimes when you watch the ECHL, you wonder how good do you have to be just to even get to play in the American Hockey League. Like if Tyler Boland is not good enough to play in the AHL, then I don't know what's going on because that man is uh, certainly a step above and quicker and better than most everyone else on the ice as far as I could tell anyway. And too bad for Dawson Mercer and Team Canada. They drop a 4-3 overtime defeat to the host Finns. So, silver medal. Nothing to be ashamed of. And apparently there's another player on the team named Drake Batherson. And you know what we do? We go to the ends of the earth to find a link to Newfoundland and Labrador. Drake Batherson's family's from Port of Basque. <laughs> anyway, so good on Mercer and Team Canada. The Finns were pretty tough. And, you know, it's no sense looking back and belly aching necessarily about the refereeing, but it was terrible. A couple of highly suspect calls really cost Team Canada, but there you go. And for those of you watching all these Game 7s, the Raiders and Carolina, they do exactly that, compete in Game 7 this evening. Do you watch any tennis? Dave, do you watch tennis? I love tennis. I watch a lot of tennis. I find it to be one of the best individual sports on the go. And some pretty heady days for Canadian tennis these days. Leila Fernandez, of course, who had the great run at the U.S. Open. She's on to the quarterfinals, looking good out there. And yesterday, Felix Auger-Aliassime, the ninth-ranked player in the world, Canadian, went up against French Open 13-time champion Rafa Nadal yesterday. Nadal, not only with his 13 titles, the most of any player at any major, men or women, his record going into yesterday's match was 105 wins against three losses, make it 106. Felix took him all the way to five sets and really battled hard and maybe deserved a better outcome, but really some great tennis players in Canada these days. If you are interested in the sport, I'm happy to talk about it if you're into it. All right, records are made to be broken, right? Now, there are some records on the book that look like they could be put away forevermore. Some of Gretzky's scoring records, DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, you know the notable ones that come to mind. It was the day in 1982 that Cal Ripken Jr., the Baltimore Orioles, began his Ironman streak playing in the first of his record 2,632 consecutive Major League Baseball games. That's it for that one, right? I mean, no one's going to do that ever again. It's not even about whether or not you can stay healthy all that while. Managers are much more likely to give you some days off throughout the, um, the regular season, which is 162 games, just to keep you fit. So 2,632 consecutive games for Cal Ripken Jr. The streak began in 1982. And lots of talk about NATO these days, whether it be the amount of money, 2% of GDP, that the NATO members are supposed to be spending on defense spending. Today, also in 1982, Spain became the 16th member of NATO. I have one more quick one on Today in History. 
So my wife is watching the Queen's Gambit. And consequently, I just had to surf around with some chess news. <laughs> chess news, yep. So today in 2012, a 43-year-old man named Viswanathan Anand won his fifth World Chess Championship for the fourth year in a row, brought home the crown to India, the birthplace of chess. So he's a massive celebrity, mobbed in the streets everywhere he goes. Also went on to look at some of the grand masters uh, and what kind of money they make. I'm just curious about the cash. So the number one player in the world is this Norwegian. He's got a net worth of $8 dollars makes about a million dollars a year playing chess pretty fantastic stuff okay let's go so you're going to need some money to get involved in bidding for some of the archdiocese's assets and it's getting tense for many people involved in these issues today because the bids are due by thursday and you have to come up with 15 percent of the bid right away and then you have a couple of weeks to come up with the entirety of the bid one notable is, of course, the Basilica of St. John the Baptist and St. Bonaventure's College and the St. Bon's Forum. So they've got a, those trio working together on a bid, and apparently one day last week, a knock on the door at St. Bon's for a couple of Toronto developers want to have a look around, talking about turning it into condos. So it's kind of hard to even imagine closing your eyes and thinking that the Basilica is a condo or a hotel restaurant or whatever, and St. Bonaventure's College is condominiums. So they're pretty tense amongst the three people, Mr. Blackie, who's leading the charge over there. They got people making small donations. Apparently someone donated their entire life savings. But of course, when you're up against the potentially very deep pockets of Toronto-based developers, of course it is stressing people out. So lots of parishioners have reached out to us over the months, and they, I, they acknowledge the fact that compensation has to be paid to the victims of the abuse at Mount Cashel, but it's just a strange one. And St. Kevin's, uh, they're going to be able to keep their riches. So St. Uh, Kevin's Parish out in Ghouls, right? So there's a Supreme Court ruling that says St. Kevin's can keep their property in the Ghouls and retain a share of the Chase the Ace money. What that share is, we don't know. But it still never ceased to amaze me that that summer of Chase the Ace was just wild. So it was about five years ago, I think, right? They made $5.5 million through Chase the Ace. That always kind of still boggles my mind. But anyway, there's a ruling in hand that says St. Kevin's can keep their, the portion of their Chase the Ace money and their property. Okay, let's keep going. So today in the House of Assembly, there's going to be legislation tabled talking about the announcement that the province made last week and some cost-of-living mitigation measures. And you know what they are. And still lots of controversy swirling around what the government can and cannot do, what they should or should not do. And yes, the financial woes that the province finds itself in are well documented. And so are the struggles that people are having. So the big one, I guess, that impacts most of us who are in a part of the motoring public is that a temporary 50% reduction in the amount of gas and diesel tax we're paying. So paying half. It's only until the beginning of 2023, so it's temporary measures. There's also going to be some one-time rebate, a home heating supplement. Of course, it doesn't include if you simply use electricity to heat your home or wood. Look, we had a couple of people calling last week about it. Income, net, net household income under uh, $100,000, one-time payment of $500. Families with an income between $100,000 and $150,000 get a partial payment, somewhere between $200,000 and $500. Yes, there's going to be people screaming that more needs to be done. And how that would work, 
Well, your opinion is most welcome here on the show. And then, of course, also part of the issues surrounding cost of living and the amount of money in people's pockets is the plan for the minimum wage to hike to $15 by the end of 2023. So a year and a half from now to 15. The fight for $15 began in 2009. Since 2009, there's been a 40% increase in uh, inflationary pressure. So 15 bucks ain't what it was in 2009. It certainly isn't going to be what it uh, will present in 2023. Also, there's a transitional support program for smaller employers as the minimum wage rises, providing 50 cents an hour per employee for employers with the cutoff of 20 or fewer employees. And I know the cost of living is top of mind for many of you, and we can talk about it today. And then there goes the era of cheap or free money. The Bank of Canada expected to hike its benchmark interest rate by a full half point, bringing it to 1.5. Now, it's always a little bit misleading, right? Because the major banks in the country, they don't get their money at 1.5. Certainly us as clients of the banks, we don't come anywhere near to being able to borrow money at the benchmark interest rate that the Bank of Canada uses. But those numbers are expected to rise as well. You want to talk about it? We can do it. So last week, plenty of concern regarding some of the criminal activity, notably the shooting up of an apartment building here just off Thorburn Road. And you know, the, some of the concerns were not just about the fact someone opened fire on the building, opened fire on the building, but the amount of time it took for the RNC to respond does bring about questions about the numbers of people working for the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. But then there was an arrest made on Friday. A 20-year-old has been brought in. The police are saying there's a direct link between the violence involving guns and knives to some criminal networks, one in St. John's and one in Paradise. So beginning on May the 13th, when someone hopped out of a car, opened fire on a parked vehicle in the Galway Boulevard, and then there was a man stabbed on George Street, then there was uh, gunshots fired at a house out in Paradise, and then there was the main lobby on Thorber Road, like as I mentioned, was shot up, and then someone firebombed a house on a street here in the east end of St. John's. So this one 20-year-old man is taken into custody in relation to the stabbing. He lives in the apartment building on Thorburn Road, or so says court documents. So even when the police say these were targeted attacks, when these criminals are hopping out and just wildly shooting into apartment buildings and what have you, it certainly puts the general public in danger. And firebombing a home, like, you know, add to it, it kind of went a little bit under the radar that the RNC confiscated 120 illegal firearms and three 3D printers printing guns. It almost sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, printing guns, but it's a real thing. So we always want to you know, portray the place as the sleepy little hamlet and that it's pretty safe to be here, and in by and large it is, and please don't take this, these comments as trying to have you live in fear because I try not to, and hopefully you do as well. And we don't know exactly what the police know about who these people are and the status of the investigations and the pending arrests that might be in the offing. But that's a pretty dire link between these criminal networks, between whoever in St. John's and whoever out in Paradise. But if you want to talk about it, we can do it. There's also some new statistics out there about firearms. Now, we do indeed have a lot of the American psyche and their news come up over the border and becomes part of our social and political discourse or commentary. 
But these are new numbers from Statistics Canada. Fire-related homicides have gone up 37% over the last 11 years, and handguns were the most commonly used weapon in such crimes. So while the federal government has added some 1,500 weapons to their banned list, the Association of Police Chiefs here in the country have long told us that handguns are a massive problem. They're a restricted weapon. There's three different categories of weapons in this country, right? So you have prohibited, restricted, and non-restricted. And the long guns, rifles, for instance, will be on the non-restrictive list. I think that's the proper terminology before the gun owners who know more about it than I do come down on me because I haven't said it properly. So restricted and uh, prohibited, restricted, and yes, non-restricted. Okay. So there's a couple of really interesting numbers in here. The proportion of homicides where a firearm was used rose from 26% in 2013 to 37% in 2020. Handguns were the weapon of choice in 50% of firearm crimes. So while the federal government has this banned list, the police chiefs tell us the handguns, by and large, are being smuggled into the country illegally. So I suppose we could do two things at once, or two issues being broached concurrently. But until we do more to keep illegally smuggled firearms out of the country, then we're swimming upstream. So it also goes on to say that only 6% of gun crimes were related to gang violence, which seems counterintuitive. I would have thought that number would be much, much higher. So handguns apparently an issue, but when you look at the safety of big city Canada, and we were just talking about violence uh, here in the city of St. John's, but you know, you would think that, my God, Toronto looks and feels like such a dangerous place. In the big scheme of safe cities, big cities around the world, Toronto's well up the list. So it's all a little bit counterintuitive. So according to the report, handguns were involved in about 70% of violent robberies, 60% of homicides, other violations causing death and attempted murders. Handguns were also involved in 54% of sexual offenses and 51% of firearm-specific violent offenses in 2020. Just some of those numbers for context, even though it's not pleasant conversation but it is what it is a lot of people extremely disappointed in a Supreme Court ruling offered last week Supreme Court of Canada regarding the number of years that the mosque shooter will have to remain behind bars before uh, eligible for parole you know what originally when he was he pled guilty found guilty of six murders and six other attempted murders the crown was asking for 150 years before this person became eligible for, for parole it was overturned, then they went back with 50. That's not going to do it. makes it all its way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And based on the unconstitutionality of it, the Supreme Court says that this fellow, fellow will be eligible for parole in 25 years. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't read the entire ruling, so I'm not going to pretend I did. But, you know, the argument for how many people cannot be rehabilitated, and the nature of a targeted hate crime by this fellow who was 27 years of age at the time when he shot up the mosque and killed six. You know, I saw some lawyers going back and forth on social media, and of course they had the legal training to be able to dig a little bit deeper into it and understanding the constitutionality of these types of things, but lots of people plain disappointed and shocked that there's a eligibility for parole. Now, there's some people who belong behind bars forever, you know, the Bernard Bernardos of the world and what have you. And being eligible doesn't mean you're going to be paroled. And so lots of people quite shocked with that particular announcement. But there you go. And also, interestingly, on the issue of when you're eligible for parole, one of the Manson family, Patricia Krenwinkel, of course convicted of seven first-degree murders back in the, the spree in the summer of 1969. Of course, she killed then-pregnant uh, actress Sharon Tate. 
the, the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune, Abigail Folger, who was notably stabbed uh, 28 times, and a celebrity hairstylist named James Sebring. So she's been denied parole, this is Patricia Cranwinkle, uh, been denied pr- uh, parole 14 times. She's been in prison for f- over 50 years. So she's been recommended parole. Now it moves on now to the next level of the process, but Manson, Patricia Cranwinkle. Okay, whatever, let's keep going. So as of a couple of days from now, on the 1st of June, the vaccine mandate uh, for public sector workers will be dropped. Curiously, I didn't know the numbers up until when Minister Cody spoke to last week. Initially, there was 32 people that said they were not going to get vaccinated. Then that number was reduced to 30. So it's a pretty small number, but those 30 people have had a tough run of it since December 17th and the inability to work. And we'll see how it works for their return to the workplace. There's no real clear understanding, but it also relates to healthcare workers and teachers. But the mandate will be dropped. And I do think, and I know I'm in the minority likely of listeners to this program, it's, ta- it's time to talk about the federal scene and the mandates and the sunset clause associated with it as well. So you want to talk about it? We can do it. And congratulations to all set to convoke. Uh, it's already happened out in Quarterbrook, but here in St. John's at Memorial University for the first time in three years, there will be an in person convocation. So, you know, there is sort of a a disappointing end to your run at post-secondary and or graduating from high school if you don't have the formal convocation ceremonies. So it's happening today. Even those who were unable to participate over the last couple of years are going to get a chance to do it. So congratulations to all set to convoke today and the next couple of days here in town. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com, but time for a tune to get her going. Today in 1981, for the third straight week at the top of the charts, Kim Carnes with an absolute smash hit, Betty Davis Eyes. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, uh, I just wanted to talk about uh, boosters and... I guess government policy as it pertains to who's uh, eligible. I'm 63 years old and I have a form of blood cancer. Uh, So I've been pretty, I was really diligent with regards to getting my uh, first two shots and then my first booster. So then they announced the second booster was going to be allowed. Now, and I, I know after the fact that it was the details, 70 years old, indigenous people, and so on. Yeah, also but, for those living in the congregant settings, for, for instance, the seniors' homes and what have you, yeah. Right. And, but in the previous announcements, uh, like the, the people who are immunocompromised, they were, I don't know, they were either not, neither met, not mentioned or, you know, like... Uh, you really had to dig for that information as to whether or not you, you're eligible for it. But the, the problem I have is I went to see, I'm only allowed to get the uh, booster when I'm off my chemo. So like I've, if I finish up a cycle of chemo, a week after that I'm, I can go say to the walk-in clinic. So I went to see my doctor, asked him if I was eligible for the booster. My doctor said yes. Then I called to make an appointment, and the lady made the appointment for me for the 16th of June, and obviously take my MCP, take my date of birth, yada yada. Uh, and she took maybe she made the appointment, and she said 
there's a walk-in clinic on Monday Pond Road, uh, and they're open between, I think it's 12 and 2 or 2 and 5 or something like that. And I said, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll go before my appointment, then I'll call you back, and I'll cancel my appointment so I don't take time from somebody else. I'll just go to the walk-in clinic. And I went to the, I went to Monday Pond Road and stood in line outside, and everybody outside went in line were, were doing the social distancing. Everyone was masked and all that. That was great. Got in uh, to be registered. Went up to the lady. She registered me. It was a walk-in, so I didn't have an appointment. She registered me. Again, took my MCP which had, and my date of birth. And then I went over and I sat down. Uh, when they finally called me, I went in to see the nurse. And she said, she said, what's your name and your date of birth? And I gave it to her. And she said, I can't uh, give you the... Uh, Injection today," she said. "You're not you're not eligible." I said, and "I had this little card that they gave me at uh, the hospital. You know, like this patient suffers from X, Y, and Z. You know, call the if you have to go. It was primarily if I had to go to emergency." I said, "I brought this just as my proof that you know I'm immunocompromised." She said, "Oh no, I understand, and I'm really sorry. How long were you standing in line?" And so I told her, and she said, "Yeah, but I." I, I just can't give you the. I just can't give you the the uh, booster. You're just not eligible. I don't understand why. Um, so uh, two people took. Well, including my doctor. Doctor, there was three levels that I went. I got passed without somebody saying to me, "Sorry, man, you're not eligible yet." You know, they they haven't opened the next tier of. Uh, eligible patients. Right. So, I mean, I guess when it boils down to the person who has to administer the dose, I guess they leave it to that person to make the final decision when, of course, they were just simply wasting people's time. You know, there was someone called her, I don't know when it was, months ago, and they drove 50 kilometers to a clinic and they were two days short of the 28 weeks out from the previous shot and were denied. In this case, you know, if exemptions are required because you're immunocompromised and or the first person who sees your birth date can very quickly do the math and understand that you're seven years too young, so-called, to receive this particular uh, uh, fourth shot second dose which of course is 20 weeks after your first booster if you are indeed eligible so i mean i I never really know where to go with these things because if we're going to have a layer of confusion added to people's constant worries then we're just making things unnecessarily uh, unnecessarily difficult right so i i I, I think i I mean i believe that the you know the the late when the nurse uh explained it to me she was you know she was very yeah, you know, she. You could. I could feel her compassion. That I can't believe you had to wait. I can't do it. I just can't do it because that's you know, that's the government's, uh, the the department's policy. That you're not. You cannot get the shot. I guess because and and you know I understand that from the perspective of it has to. It'll be on a record. And so somebody says, well, why did Mary Jones give David Powers a an injection. He's only 63 years old. What's going on there? You know, but the first, the frustrating thing about it is as an immunocompromised person, it's, 
I don't. I, it would seem lo- logical to me as a layperson <laughs> that any time there's an opening, you know, they they say, okay, uh, fourth boost, you can get your second booster. This is for 70 year old uh, indigenous people, people in you know the uh, homes, and I mean, immunocompromised should be. In my opinion, just add an uh, an automatic add-on. If your doctor views you to be at uh, heightened risk, then that should probably be enough. I know the province has, by and large, relied on recommendations coming from the National Committee on Immunizations. But if we have well-trained healthcare professionals, doctors, who are your specialist, or even your GP that acknowledges, has with continuity of care, and they know who you are, they know what your ailments are, they know the risk that the virus possibly presents to you, if it's good enough for them, it should be good enough for public health, I, w- I would guess. You know, I, and anyway. that's my... That's my and I said, because I even said to the nurse, I said, if I'd walked in here with a, a signed letter from my doctor saying that I should get the shot, I still can't do it. So, that, you know, that makes it sound as if they're, you know, well, they're, she's just following the rules. And I do understand. I'm not, you know, um, it's, it's, not, it's, not against, it's nothing against her or anything like that. Obviously, it's, uh, you know, I mean, r- the rules are there to be to follow, not to be broken. I do understand that part mm-hmm. of it. You know, it's just a bit, uh, it's disheartening uh, to go through the chemo and say, well, okay, chemo's over for a little bit. Now, next next week, I can go get that uh, second booster and to go, you know, go through the process and then, no, sorry, you're not eligible. It's disheartening. Understood, David. It's a bit of left hand, right hand, maybe operating two different worlds or realms. And so maybe these types of things, you know, even if we could just get some very clear guidance, there will be no exemptions or there will be. And what includes an eligible exemption? Let's just have a better understanding of that. Because just simply saying immunocompromised might not tell the entire tale either. Because there's a difference between, you know, having been on the heels of chemo and immunocompromised and ongoing concern with blood cancer versus someone else who might be younger and have one ailment that could qualify for immunocompromise, but maybe doesn't present a heightened risk that your condition would. And I don't know anything about these conditions because I am not a doctor. So anyway, it's unfortunate you had to go all the way to the very last stage to be told that you are ineligible. But I appreciate your time, David. I wish you well. Thanks, Patty. I just wanted I just wanted to, you know, make the point. Point made. And I appreciate and I appreciate your taking the time. My pleasure. Take good care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, we've had a couple of those examples. Like the one that sticks out to me was drove 50 kilometers, two days shy of the 28 weeks, can't get it. Mm-hmm, okay. Line number two, Glenn, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, Patty. Hi. Uh, Glenn in Cornerbrook. Uh, I picked up a set of keys yesterday at the Bowwater Park in Cornerbrook yesterday evening. And uh, if the owner wants to uh, get them back, they can call my number, if you don't mind. Fire away. Okay, six three four two zero nine three. Glenn in Cornerbrook. Two zero. What? Pardon me, sir. Two two zero nine three. Got it. Okay, buddy. Good luck. Hopefully, All someone right, is, will get reunited. Appreciate the time. Great answer. Okay, thank Glenn. you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, there you go. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away.
Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. All right, let's go to line number five. Morning, John, you're on the air. Hi, John, I'm five, you're on the air. Yeah, maybe not. All right, put John on hold. Let's go to line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Top shelf this morning. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Wanted to uh, talk about the Supreme Court of Canada decision. Sure. Friday. It was a 9-0 decision. The uh, ruling was written by the Chief Justice, and it affirms the uh, constitutional right under Section 12 of the Charter to be uh, not subjected to cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. I think what that ruling, one one of the takeaways is, is that it reaffirms that there has to be a limit put on uh, or a check put on the uh, the power of the state to punish offenders in this country. Yeah, I guess the key quote is uh, pretty much what you just said. Not only do such punishments bring the administration of justice into disrepute, they are cruel and unusual by nature. But the key also, I think, for the general public who many... Many of which were, I don't know, sad, angry, frustrated with the particular ruling, is we're simply talking about eligibility. And the checks and balances there is whether or not he would present uh, a danger to society at the time of his eligibility for parole in 25 years, or I guess it's less than that now. So you know, I guess that's the, still the, the authority that the Crown retains over this particular murderer but you know the way it goes you know uh, emotions and human nature will bleed into even the most sophisticated black and white issues of our day it's just nature of the beast so if this is an interpretation 9-0 by the supreme court to talk about constitutionality it doesn't eliminate the fact that people will still think that that person does not deserve to see the light of day again it's just the way the world works some people maybe will never or it'll be an awful long time before they get a chance the paul bernardo's the coughs of the world and the like but there you go the my email inbox was bombarded with emotional reaction and not surprisingly so yep it's uh, an interesting to note that uh, bernardo applied for uh, release uh, about a year ago and he was denied so apparently the uh, national parole board is of the opinion that mr bernardo has not been rehabilitated and maybe he will never be rehabilitated maybe his psychiatric and psychological <coughs> uh, file indicates that he's a uh, and i have no doubt that he probably is a psychopath and uh, by the very nature of uh, psychopathy or uh, disorders of that nature, uh, it's it's inherent that people cannot be rehabilitated. Some people hard. can't, you know. Although yeah. Carla Homolka was released, yeah, she uh, she did uh, twelve years, I believe, for manslaughter, and she did the whole twelve years, mm-hmm. which is uh, unusual. Uh, usually, you're granted parole, but uh, the parole board decided to keep her in, and at the end of her twelve-year sentence, by law. She has to be released. If she wasn't, she could file a habeas, cor- uh, habeas corpus uh, petition to be released, right? Yeah. So, so again, that's, that, and Leslie Mahaffey. Yeah, you know, and uh, that's the way it works. But I think implicit in this um, in this ruling is, uh, and it would be just uh, be a, a moot point because we don't have uh, the death penalty on the books in this country. The death penalty was abolished in 1976. But I think if there was ever a time in the future that uh, capital punishment was to be uh, reinstated in this country by a, a future government. I think this ruling uh, puts the kibosh on that implicitly. I, th- I think uh, the ruling uh, 
would would give uh, credence to uh, to the unconstitutionality of, of the death penalty in this country. Look, I mean, I think the polling has been pretty clear. Canadians, the majority of Canadians, do not see the need for capital punishment. There's always going to be a segment of society that uh, is bloodthirsty on that front and would like to see, you know, the eye for an eye, which just eventually makes the entire world blind. But even if we just harken back to very recent news regarding David Milligard, that should be all anyone needs to know about the inappropriate nature of uh, capital punishment, a death sentence here in this country. Because if it just, if it was one, like Mr. Milligard, who would have never seen the light of day based on DNA evidence overturning his conviction, even if it's just one David Milligard, unfairly and without cause being put to death, and that should kind of squash the argument. I, I don't know why it proceeds in some corners when, you know, that's, I think for me, that's all I need to know. Yeah, I, I don't get it either. I, I don't see the logic. It's uh, still st- uh, state-sanctioned murder. And if you look in the United States, the United States uh, Supreme Court has ruled consistently that life without parole provisions at the federal criminal level and at uh, various state levels is constitutional under the, uh, I think it's amendment, the Eighth Amendment, which is uh, equivalent to our uh, Section 12 in the Charter. So the cruel and unusual uh, punishment or treatment or punishment provisions in the uh, Bill of Rights and under the Eighth Amendment are constitutional. And for the death penalty, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that the death penalty is constitutional. So you can you can see the stark divide between our country and the United States, right? Well, for for us, it's probably a little bit more about policy. For them, it's all about politics, which just, you know, I, I know that's splitting a fine hair, but that's exactly what we have. It's not, you know, there's no good faith discussion south of the border on abortion or guns or death penalty or those types of very contentious political issues. They don't, no one talks about the policy and the justification for or against. It's simply whether or not you're on my side. And the, one side hates the other side with a passion. And that's, they're at loggerheads. I, I think we have some of that in this country, maybe not to the extent or the severity, but it's also interesting when you look at, you mentioned the capital punishment, and Patricia Krenwinkel being recommended parole after 50 years uh, uh, serving her, what was a death sentence at the beginning when she was first convicted in 1971, then California abolished the death penalty, it's since brought it back, she's been behind bars for over 50 years for her role in seven first degree murder charges, so amazing stuff. Anyway, I know that's got nothing to do with the uh, Supreme Court ruling here in this country, and I don't, uh, on purpose I don't mention the uh, the fellow by name, the 27-year-old who committed such atrocities at the Quebec mosque. But anywho, last word goes to you. Yeah, it's uh, it's still an important facet of uh, sentencing and uh, provisions in this country. Uh, no matter what you're convicted of and sentenced for, even the most heinous of crimes, that rehabilitation has to be a factor that has to be put into consideration by the by the sentencing court for an offender. And uh, you know the, the the legislation that was brought in by the Harper government. I did effectively did away with that. It's effectively a, a life sentence with no parole. Uh, if you get like a 75-year uh, sentence, uh, parole in parole ineligibility period, even if you're 30 years old, <laughs> you're you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. You know. I do know. Uh, it's. Uh, I knew this was going to provoke some conversation. I'm not surprised you were the first one to hop in on it. But we welcome anybody's opinion on these serious matters. Uh, thanks for the time this morning, Colin. Cheers, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm going to take John before the break, okay, David? Let's go try John on five again. John, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. How are you doing today? Great, sir. You? Not bad. Uh, i got a, a bit of an issue. I'm having a bit of an issue with, uh, I guess, the Crown Prosecutor's Office. And uh, uh, I, I contacted, I guess, the, the Crown's uh, boss, I guess, uh, the senior Crown of, uh, of Eastern Region. And I also contacted 
the assistant deputy minister of uh, director of public uh, public prosecutions and it seems like I'm not getting a headway. Like, is there? I know with the RCMP, they've got an RCMP complaints commission. Does does the does the Crown Prosecutor have something like that, or is that is that? You can file a complaint through the Law Society of Newfoundland or Labrador. You can file a complaint through the Department of Justice and Public Safety at the provincial government. Either of those. Okay. Yeah. Because, like I said, I, I I I had some problem. I was self-represented. And the Crown wouldn't talk to me. And as a self-represented uh, litigant, I'm, I've, I've had to have contact with, with the Crown. And I, I, I did some research and, and said she had, that they had to talk to me. And so I had reported her. And uh, then I escalated a bit more, and I called uh, the Minister of uh, Justice's office. But she wanted a, a, a written letter, for, or I guess, for my complaint. Well, I don't have very much education, but... You know, I was hoping to talk to somebody and, and explain what's been going on because uh, we've gotten to the point now that uh, I went, uh, I, I filed a, what they call a private prosecution or private information uh, last year, and I had to go uh, before a judge for a hearing to see if those charges were warranted. Uh, I sat down for two hours with a judge, uh, with one of the prosecutors, and the individual who I filed a private prosecution on, uh, their lawyer. For two hours, I sat there, I gave my evidence, I gave my statements, I gave everything I needed. And at the end of that, the judge said, yeah, I agree to 100%, these charges are warranted. And two weeks later, the Crown dropped them. So they said it was in the public's best interest not to do it. But there was a lot of different, a lot of stuff going on there that should, you know, should have been, you know, checked into. But where I'm having problem with this crown, I think I'm being, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, blackballed, because I, I reported this crown a couple times to her supervisors. So like it's, it's not right, you know. You shouldn't, you know, if you do, you're not doing your job correctly, you know, and someone calling you, well, you know, that's that's to help you, you know, start doing your job better. But now I'm getting blackballed because. You know, I open my mouth, which is not. Well, I would suggest going to the Law Society. Um, they're responsible for professional conduct. Uh, I use that as the the overarching role that they would play when we talk about complaints being uh, lodged against one person or other. So start there. And uh, like I said, with regards to this, like uh, I know stuff happens on SEO and all that, but when it when it when it deems or comes close to being criminal. Like you know, it's it is what it is. You know, it's, you can't you can't you can't throw people's uh, complaints out or whatever just because of their name. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, they, that needs to be investigated and all that. So that, that's what I'm that's what I'm calling it. Right, and that's why I'm trying to give you a fairly independent body that yeah. deals with professional conduct or misconduct. So, you know, the Department of Public uh, Justice, Public Safety would probably turn you on to the Law Society. So that's where yeah. I would go next versus the supervisor of the Crown Prosecutors. Perfect. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, John. Good luck. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Price of Fuel, and it's also National Tourism Week. We're going to talk about the ho- upcoming, hopefully, boom of a tourism season. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, as aforementioned, it's National Tourism Week. Join us online. Everyone is a member of the board at Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador. as Chef Todd Perrin. Good morning, Todd. You're on the air. morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, can't complain. It's an absolutely gorgeous morning today to uh, kick off National Tourism Week. So uh, we're excited and look forward to a busy year, hopefully. It sounds like bookings are up at St. John's International Airport. I'm not sure about the other airports. Marine Atlantic bookings are quite strong, even way outside of pre-pandemic bookings. Every reason to be bullish. How about you and your members? 
Yeah, I think uh, I think right across the membership, the uh, there's a lot of anticipation that we're you know we have a you know a, what we hope will be a booming season ahead. I mean, always uh, you know I guess what the last couple of years have taught us that you're kind of waiting for a shoe to drop at all times. But uh, I think there's a great level of optimism and, and confidence that uh, you know we're getting back to normal and uh, and you know given. Uh, People have been shuttered for the last two years trying to deal with the with the COVID-19. Uh, I think that people are excited to get on the move, and I think Newfoundland and Labrador is a destination that uh, that the world wants to get to, and I think we're seeing it with the, the promise of the bookings that are ahead for this season. Yeah, I mean, there's pent-up demand, and of course, factor in the case that so many people had uh, some uh, credits with the airlines that had to be used by this summer, so people were going to get up and they are going to travel. It's caused some issues, though. I mean, I know it's not going to be potentially a massive concern at St. John's International, or any other airport in the province. But what do you hear from any potential bookings that may be in question, given just how cracked it is, at, like, for, for instance, Pearson International in Toronto? People waiting up to four hours just to make the transition from the aircraft to the taxi. Something wrong there. Hear any concerns on that front? Yeah, there's definitely concerns out there for sure. I mean, all you got to do is watch the, the news and the, you know anybody can see what's going on in some of the major hubs. I mean... Again, you know, we're we're pulling slowly away from the you know the the shackles of, of COVID nineteen. I mean, we're getting away from the restrictions and whatnot. But we're in a world where, you know, people are still getting sick and people are, are having to to stay for home for work and all of those things. So there are challenges uh, with you know labor and, and, and people power in different places. So we're seeing that manifest itself in somebody's lineups and whatnot. But I guess you know, as a small independent operator and you know, as a board, as a member of the board of HNL representing small independent operators i guess uh you know we would just kind of call on uh, the powers that be from the, you know these large operations these large corporations these large uh you know governmental agencies and stuff to you know do their best to be on top of things just in the way that we're expected to do inside of our own small little businesses so you know i think we all have to you know we've all been challenged by the same things but um you know it's just important that everyone keeps their shoulder to the grindstone and keeps moving forward and uh, just not a shrug of shoulders and just kind of buy that this is what we got to deal with you know i think that it's very important that we maximize the potential for 2022 tour season in newfoundland and labrador from a small operator perspective and if we're getting uh, you know uh, artificially governed by uh, you know access and, and security lines and all of that stuff then you know those are things that are way beyond our control so we just hope that the people that are involved in those things and the decisions that need to be made there uh, have the best interest of the whole industry at heart. You, you made a comment about labor. There's a labor shortage across the country. Whether or not people want to believe that, there absolutely is. The numbers are clear. Now, unemployment is at a real low number, but labor participation is also at a low number. How are we doing here? Because sometimes the seasonal nature, people think that it's just a seasonal gig as opposed to you can make a real career in tourism and hospitality. Are your members having a hard time staffing up? Because it's one thing to have the folks come and another thing to be able to give them the maximum service uh, and amenities that they expect. I think you'll find that uh, every operator would have a different story. I think some people are are doing are doing better than others. I think some people are having a different. Uh, Different challenges finding the people that they need. So I mean, again, it's it's like uh, it's like I think COVID didn't t- it taught us nothing else. It taught us that you know, uh, individual circumstances are individual. So I think that operators are doing their best to, uh, you know, put their best foot forward to provide uh, meaningful and gainful employment for the folks that they need to operate their businesses. And you're you're bang on the money, Patty. The, the tourism industry. 
Uh, you and I have had this conversation a hundred times. The tourism industry needs to pull out of this mentality that is out there in society that is just a seasonal job, that is just something you do on the weekends. You know, this is a this is a, a viable industry. It is, you know, again, I'm bullish that it's going to be the future of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, and I think that we just need to, to start treating it that way in all aspects. We need to look at it the same way as we do the oil industry or the fishery or anything else. So, so you know, I think it's important. H&L has a, has a campaign out there now uh, promoting promoting tourism, tourism jobs, and making people try to get people aware that this is something you should look at. This is a career path you can go down and have a meaningful job, meaningful occupation. So, uh, so you know, we'll keep banging on that door. I mean, I've made almost a 30-year career, and it's all, you know, people could argue how successful I am. Talk to me and my banker about that. But, but you know, i, I got a place to go every morning when I get up, and I think there's a good many people like me, and I think that it's important that people realize that that's, that's the world we live in, where this industry is... is you know, a, a very dynamic one. You can have all kinds of different jobs. You can do work inside. You can work outside. You can work in isolated places. You can work in big cities. You can work in restaurants. I mean, it's it is so varied and entertaining and interesting uh, that it, offer, it offers opportunities for people with all levels of interest and skill level. Uh, there was some stories kicking around that some bookings had been lost because of the inability to secure a rental car or the expense of securing a rental car. Then Toro, the car sharing application, came to town. It's been activated since the 17th of this month has anybody signed up because Toro might be able to share those numbers I can't get any but I've been asking repeatedly on this show if you have indeed put your car on the site and you're going to have guests use and drive and rent your vehicle over the summer how's it looking how's it working what are you anticipating do you have any bookings I can't get one single piece of feedback you got anything yeah I don't have anything direct from from Toro per se but I'll tell you that anecdotally I've talked to a couple of folks who have friends that have uh, listed vehicles and uh, one one friend of mine in particular has a friend of his, his neighbor who uh, listed his second vehicle and was booked for the complete month of August so you know and it kind of happened the moment he put it up there it was gone so you know I think that uh, I think that the Toro rollout had a few uh, hiccups and a few bumps, and I think there was some uh, confusion about how it all works, and I think there were some seed sown of uh, distrust of the system and what it's going to mean for your insurance and all that kind of stuff. But I think that, you know, that that's a, it's a viable, legitimate uh, app. It's a viable, legitimate business. It's out there. works in other places. I think people should look at it seriously as an opportunity. Make sure you do your due diligence. Talk to your insurance companies. Talk to the people you need to talk to. But it is a way for people to, to use a second vehicle that's sitting there in their driveway now that their, their kid has gone off for summer vacation or something they got an extra vehicle lying around you can put a few bucks in your pocket uh, with you know minimal risk and you can uh, help out the industry at the same time because lord knows we do need that that level of uh, of extra transportation in the system it is a problem right across the and Labrador that we don't have enough vehicles for people and we're definitely losing opportunities because of that so hopefully Toro is part of the, the, the solution and as we move forward hopefully that whole part of the tourism industry continues to improve again better because access in all forms be it ferries airplanes or rented cars are vital to the success and the future growth of what we're doing well happy national tourism week to you good luck we'll see you around cheers patty take care thanks todd bye-bye it's todd perrin he's a member of the board at hospitality nl all right appreciate the patience of the caller in the queue and even if you get a rental or even your own rig Price of fuel, that's what the, this caller wants to talk about, and then we're going to speak to you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number four, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. How are you today? Doing okay, thanks. How you doing? Great day to be alive. Yes, sir. 
uh, Paddy, I was just calling in regarding the government where they uh, come out with this $500 rebate for anybody that's burning furnace oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paddy, that's great, you know, but uh, it's price of oil, so that will give you a third of a tank of oil if you're uh, going to put it in your tank. Most people are going to get that money. they got uh, other places to spend it, especially where summer is here. Uh, Patty, and regarding the, uh, the eight cents that they, uh, the taxes they took off the gasoline, well, that's only that's only a little uh, treat they're throwing out there because we're going to end up happening. They'll end up putting the gas up, so that eight cents is not going to mean very much to the consumer, to the person that's driving back and forth to the city to drive. Um, the price of gas, Patty, is a hard is a hard trouble for anyone to justify. Uh, most of the people aren't from around the bay to drive in from around the bay uh, and uh, save that eight cents. Well, at the end of the day, that eight cents is not going to make a whole lot of difference to them. I wish that the government could come up with a better solution regarding the prices, like we're the highest in North America right now. Um, I wish they could come up with a better solution because the public utilities board, uh, with the government putting it down on that eight cents, for sure and certain, Patty, they're going to, uh, with their uh, their interruption formulas, they will put that eight cents back there. So not a win-win for everyone. Well, what, what would you like them to do? Because, look, I get the concern. I kind of kind of had it with the price of gas like everybody else or diesel and or put uh, home heating oil in my tank but what can we legitimately or realistically expect for the government to be able to do well patty uh, myself i'm a voter and uh it doesn't really matter what you suggest for the government to do they are going to do what they're going to do uh, my suggestion would be well anybody that is uh, potentially using their car to and from work um, they, there should be some type of thing, some type of gas card given out where they receive three cents, five cents, whatever it may be, off their liter of gas, especially if they're traveling and they're they're traveling to and fro work. It's different when you're uh, like uh, only last weekend we went to a park in Avondale, and you believe you wouldn't believe the amount of trailers that are in these parks. Now I'm sure you're driving big F-150 pickup trucks and Dodges and whatnot. Um, they can't afford to tow those trailers anywhere else, so they opt to put it in a park. You know, like uh, I would say, if the government would turn around and say, look, okay, well, you're working, you're using your vehicle to and from work. I know uh, years ago, uh, everybody careful. Well, it's going to come to a time again uh, where they're going to have to careful because uh, by, at the end of the day, by the time you put your gas in your vehicle and you come home, you're not ahead too much money by the time you, uh, and then again, uh, that all reflects on our groceries. Um, everything, like uh, you go to the grocery store and look at just meats and whatever have you, you're looking at the grocery store, everything's increasing by 2 and $3. The poor person, like myself, is on a fixed income. I tell you, Patty, it's awful hard to uh, make ends meet. Um, again, like I say, I, I wish the government would just step up and, like uh, Andrew Fury, uh, I'm not uh, pointing no fingers or nothing like that, Patty, but uh, he's well enough to uh, uh, 
uh, invite, and I'm, I'm, I'm not prejudiced by no means to invite the Croatians. There, he's there for them, but I didn't see him. Invite the who? Pardon? Invite who? Sorry. The the uh, the, 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 tri- the trip that they had sent over that 160 people. Oh, the Ukrainian refugees. Yes. Okay. Sorry, sir. Uh, yeah, you know, and he was there for them, but there in Mar- Marystown where they were trying to get that extra license for the fisheries, and, got, and hats off to that guy, he's got his license, because uh, those people up there need it, and like, we have local fish plants here in Briggs and Fort Grays, they're all protesting because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. There's lots of fish out there, lots of different products, lots of different species, uh, let him, let that company, let that community avail off that plant instead of having to travel two and three hours to and from work, right? Yeah, I'm not so sure how some of this is avoidable. Uh, but on the Ukrainian front, of course, it's also important to note that many financial supports that refugees would have received in the past, the Ukrainian refugees are not getting it. So that's. The, you know, the cost of a charter craft, which apparently there's a relationship with the government of Canada on that front, when they arrive, other than the Association for New Canadians and individuals and Greg Roberts from Mary Browns, they're kind of on their own. So yeah. that's not cost as much. And, and plus, I've seen so many of uh, the newcomers uh, immediately out there looking for work to do anything. So I think they're going to be contributors. And I, I know people would say, you know, talk about charity begins at home and what have you. But, you know, I mean, people running for their very lives willing to come here to try to set up roots and set up shop and to go get a job and to pay their taxes and move on. I, I think there's there's a different conversation to be had there versus the price of fuel or what have you. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, well, I'm not going to take up no more of your time, Patty. No worries. Okay, you have a great day. Same to you, sir. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, will I take another before we go to the break, tape? And just very quickly, this little... Black and tan, short hair, male chihuahua, six-year-old, wearing a green collar, been missing since the 10th of May out in the re- out in the Gander area. Uh, response to Tank. Tank is the little chihuahua's name. It's been uh, missing for a long time. Keep an eye peeled in that area. Let's go to line number two. Jonathan, you're on the air. Howdy, Daly. Good to hear you, boy. I uh, can't really hear yours. Okay. Can you hear me now, Patty? I can hear you better. Go right ahead. Okay, sir. Thank you. I'd like to discuss uh, impacts and benefits agreements and uh, local construction projects on this Monday. So uh, basically, I'd just uh, like to discuss the importance of that uh, impacts and benefits agreements. You know, when uh, construction uh, or development companies come to the uh, township, a major project, the importance that a, a town or a regional municipality uh, should take into consideration these impacts and benefits agreements to ensure that uh, uh, these these companies and uh, the work opportunities also uh, agreements within the town for supporting of schools or or whatnot and uh, and wellness centers that uh, they look at uh, uh, sitting down with these companies and uh, setting up a development agreement before they come in. And, into, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, well, the way I look at it, I've discussed this before, is that, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to say a prime example in, uh, in our gesture right now. I'm from the Placentia region. Uh, originally, I'm uh, presently in Ontario. Uh, we, we had uh, Husky Sonolis, which was shut down. 
due to COVID for a year or two, but it's a multi-billion dollar project, uh, millions and millions, multi-millions in, in, in infrastructure and developments and offshore. And uh, we really want to invite people to come in and do this work. But uh, I know one example is me. Um, I couldn't get employment in that place. Uh, it was locked up a lot through uh, unions and uh, and just different different reasons, political aspects, close closeness to St. John's and the other greater St. John's region. Um, everybody was in within proximity of the project. Um, locals weren't getting the best opportunity, in my opinion. Um, I watched that place develop since 2013 in Argentia. Um, it's within the township of. Uh, uh, Placentia region, the municipality and surrounding communities. And, uh, you know, you have such potential for growth, but the town is hurting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of town, uh, sorry, small businesses that have shuttered in the past few years. Uh, COVID had a huge effect on that. It affect tourism and whatnot, but, uh, we have a major player that's, uh, an offshore, you know, Sonovus that's in, uh, in the region. And, and we really want to open, open arms and say come in and develop and we have a lot of uh, skilled trades and, and uh, businesses that are interested yeah we gave them tens of millions of dollars yes we did we did uh, 45 million comes to mind keep keep yes and that's that is no small small amount of money of taxpayers money and that's true it's uh, to support it and support um, the development of, of the offshore and, and keep this going and that's that's important we all understand that uh, I just I just look at the town of Placentia itself as a small town. You know, there's, it, it's a tourism-based town um, and fisheries, but uh, there's a lot of skilled trades there too. And uh, there's people in there on the project that are working, and others that weren't, like myself, for example. I had to I had to move um, things like that. Uh, you know, houses up for sale and whatnot. But I didn't want that. You know, Placentia is a beautiful town. I think Argentia has a lot of opportunity in the future for, say, Data North, for offshoot uh, developments where they could uh, look at bits and pieces of the construction being, being put together and, and, and that be a good supply base operation location for offshore. Uh, but before they do come in and, and develop, and uh, I believe the towns where these things do happen whether Bay Bulls or other areas, they should look at the impacts and benefits agreements to benefit town, towns and the people. Well, I would, sure, it's a good place to start, you know. And you hear trades and L working towards agreements with the provincial government that when it's government money behind one project or another, that there be a clear emphasis on uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and the skilled trades and Newfoundland Labrador-based companies getting their fair crack, if not first crack, at the jobs. Of course, I don't think anybody disputes it. You can't, we have to be careful not to be isolating ourselves or play the protectionism card a little too aggressively because we have lots of folks here working in other provinces and in other countries. Countries. Lots of companies based here doing work in other provinces and other countries. So there's a balance. But getting jobs and keeping jobs for uh, people in the region, of course, critically important. No one would argue that point. How could they? I appreciate the time, Jonathan. Now, anything else quick before I have to go? Well, that's that's about it, Patty, today. I just uh, thanks for your time and look into these future projects. Bring them in. 
bring in uh, these, and, and we need specialists to come in and be able to build this work. There's no doubt about that, right? We need highly skilled engineering and business-minded people to come in and, and highly specialized technical people. But, but we also want to support the locals to develop our own. Uh, industries and in, within Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, let's look at that as we look into the future. Beta Nord and other other uh, partners. Um, let's uh, try to write something in contract to make sure we uh, give locals a chance. Appreciate the time, Jonathan. Take good care. You too, Patty. Okay. All right. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. That's Nancy Reed. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Thanks, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to um, you. I'm really glad to be able to speak this morning just for a few minutes. I want listeners to know that this is National Accessibility Week in Canada. And uh, I was really uh, pleased to see this morning when I turned on VOCM first on my, on my phone that uh, the question of the day is actually a question regarding National Accessibility Week. And, um, you know, your listeners hear me and so many people uh, coming on the airwaves talking about accessibility and the need for greater accessibility. And this is a week that um, our federal government and federal systems really uh, point to that need in Canada. And I'll just speak, if I could, for a moment around accessibility. And accessibility is not just physical access. It's not just a person in a wheelchair who is trying to figure out how to navigate uh, you know, a ramp or, or how to get into a building that is faced with stairs. It's also talking about persons with uh, low vision or persons with intellectual disabilities and ways that we provide services and open doors, sometimes figuratively, sometimes literally, to people regardless of their disabilities or abilities. Um, one of the ways we might do that for a person with low vision might be to consider the signage that we use, use in our buildings. And in those signs, are we really putting the letters with a color that is really contrasting the background so that if I'm a person with low vision, I can really see that color contrast. And that's just one example of ways that we can do things that increase accessibility. But there are still so many needs for increased accessibility in our communities every day. And this week is really one that we can bring forward and, and to highlight some of those things. Well, you know, just understanding what a disability means goes a long way to ensuring that the inclusion and measures that are taken that are required to accommodate people with different disabilities. And you mentioned vision loss and contrasting letters to its background. Then you hear the story of Amalone. And for the second time in, I think, five, six years, she was denied access to a, a taxi cab because she had her service dog with her. And, of course, the, the claim is, well, the driver is allergic but it's the second time it's happened. So this, to me, might be as much about the fact that a cab driver didn't want the animal in versus understanding why Amalone needs a service animal. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of need for education, uh, better education, and I certainly you know, can't speak to the realities of that particular driver. Again, it is something that we see frequently, and we, we have to recognize that every person can be a person with disabilities. And if a driver has an allergy that is significant, that would make it impossible for that driver to service a person with a service animal, then the need would be for that driver to immediately call another driver and have somebody assist 
right away so that that person doesn't have to wait, you know, a prolonged amount of time for another driver. And I know, the, you know, the possibility of that is sometimes challenging as well. However, that's what we would recommend. Um, but a person cannot be denied access to service because they have a legitimate service animal. And uh, some persons with uh, vision loss, significant vision loss or blindness do use service animals. And most often you can very easily see that vest and the, you know, the certification for that animal. And so we can't be denied access based on that purpose. Uh, but education goes a long way in that space. Yeah, there was a story a couple of years ago where someone with a service animal was asked to leave the passport office. Another one where they were asked to leave a mall on the West Coast. These types of things are completely avoidable if we understand what the disability means and why the need for a service animal. Uh, it's one thing for you know, renovations or accommodations to be made to already existing buildings, public and or private. Mm-hmm. Quite another when we uh, start from the beginning and understand what we're doing, whether it be the concept of universal design or whatnot, are we doing, I know there's a long road to, uh, a long road to hoe here, but even just incorporating universal design, when we go to uh, design and to build anything, the science building at Memorial University, right. or part of some uh, public in high, post-secondary institution and or a private building, how are we doing on that front? Well, we still got a long way to go. Uh, we are seeing from, um, I guess, from our provincial government right now, we are seeing, uh, I guess, um, a starting point. We know that the um, the new mental health facility, for instance, in universal design consideration has been in that conversation from the beginning. And the new health care system in Cornerbrook, again, universal design was considered at the, in that very space. Uh, but what we still see are some announcements that come out without any understanding of whether or not universal design has been considered. And I'm thinking, and I don't have the correct uh, dates or anything in my head, but the recent um, identifiers for um, uh, low-cost housing and uh, social housing that were that were identified. I'm not sure, and I haven't done the follow-up with, with the groups responsible, I'm not sure if the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Association and others have really considered universal design in those spaces. Universal design is so important because it's not just building for a particular type of disability or a particular individual. It enables everyone in the door. It enables everybody to participate in that space. So whether I'm a person who is a, you know, has a disability, whether I'm a person who, um, I might be, a, you know, a person who's trying to get into a door, carrying a briefcase and three coffee and trying to figure out how do I turn a knob to open the door? Can't do that. But if it's universally designed and that door opens automatically, or if it's a lever handle that I can tap it with the back of my elbow, it opens the door for everybody. And that's just one little example of universal design. But it makes spaces and places available to everybody, regardless of age, ability, um, in any way. It just makes spaces available. And beyond being the right thing to do, it's cost-efficient as well. I hate to always bring money into these types of conversations, but ultimately, that's an important consideration when we do it right up front versus have to retrofit or to renovate to accommodate as we should be doing in in any public space in particular, and surely in the private sector as well. Uh, Anything else going on that you'd like to talk about during this particular at National Accessibility Week or anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, thanks, Patty. There is actually one thing, uh, maybe two little things. Sure. Um, National Accessibility Week is really important for us all, and it gives us an opportunity to think about what we're doing in this province. 
And at this moment uh, in this province, the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities actually has a survey that's available to the people of the province. It's available to people who identify as being a person with a disability and or their family and care providers. It's also available to the general public and anybody who would like to contribute. We've, we're getting a really good response. We've got around 400, uh, at, um, I guess, received uh, surveys that I know of right now. However, we're still open for another week. We'd really like for people to contribute. It will give you an opportunity to really contribute to accessibility in the space. We hope that these that this survey will give us information so that when we go forward, we'll be able to better address the needs that exist. And we're also going to be doing a multimedia campaign in the coming months. And this survey, the information from this survey, will be used to uh, determine the type of survey, the, the type of uh, multimedia campaign we're going to produce, and also the information that people need to hear. That survey is available right now online. I know it's in the Twitter feed. It's also available on our website, codnl.ca, codnl.ca, and it's available there on the front page. In addition to that, anybody who um, fills out a survey, at the end of the survey, there's an opportunity that you can actually uh, enter a draw for two $200 gift cards that will be available. So, you know, a little bit of an extra bonus for, for, for two people who actually fill out this survey as well. Appreciate the time this morning, Nancy. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, that's Nancy Reed, the Executive Director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. And now, time for a break. When we go back, Gus and the Keeley wants to talk about burning wood. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Gus. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, in response, I guess, to the question that was asked on VOCM, uh, I think it was Friday, is the government doing enough to address the problems of the high cost of living and fuel prices and everything? Uh, well, I, I don't think it's enough and it's not as misplaced because uh, it's not only the, the households that burn oil or, or that is directly affected by the, the cost of fuel. Because, say, I burn wood, and, and when uh, I'm away from the house, I have the liquor eat on, of course. But uh, the cost for the gas for the chainsaw has gone up. The mix for that gas has gone up. The chain oil has gone up. And then it's got to be taken out of the woods, so the, the price of gas has <laughs> certainly gone up for the, the snowmobile. The injection oil has gone up. And then it needs to be trucked home with gas so like is <laughs> more is not uh, wood used to be the cheapest way to go but it's not anymore because of the cost of gas and oil right i guess the trucking home bid has been addressed with this minor break in the provincial how is, tax how is that being uh, addressed well, Four to eight cents a liter on the, on the gas yeah well i guess that's all any of us got so I, that's what i meant by that um yeah, and I guess with electri- electric heat, the reason there's no attention given to that, I assume, is because that cost is not being impacted by some of the other pressures we see. It hasn't been spiking like we've seen the price of home heating fuel. That's why there's no attention given to it, even though I'm sure anyone who uh, heats their house with a hydro uh, strictly would love to get a break, but those prices haven't been fluctuating and spiking like the other prices of these distillates that we're all getting pummeled by. Yeah, and uh, the other thing is the uh, is the household com- combined income. 
And my wife and I are seniors, and our uh, threshold is 34000 a year. Well, that's what it was uh, prior to this year. Now, I don't know. It might have, might have went up a little. I haven't got that information letter yet saying what, it's, what it is this year. But uh, we're, so our combined income is $34,000 a year. Uh, and, like, for me, uh, the, that break that they gave is, is, amounts to very little, no more than to do for the rest of the, rest of the drivers and that. But uh, in saying that, uh, that uh, the, uh, from 100, say, uh, the households with a combined income of 100,000, 150,000 still getting a portion of that, like, no, that's that's not right. Like, a household of uh, 34,000 a year certainly needs it more so than a, than a household that's got a combined income of 100, uh, from 100 to 150. My goodness. Like, we're, the, the, the poor is getting, uh, the, is dropping between the cracks again. And so there's nothing there. And I, I urge Eddie Joyce, now is the time for, that he can probably do something a little more than uh, than uh, take pictures with uh, with bir- at birthday parties and stuff. And uh, and, I, and all the opposition, really, to uh, no, uh, is not reaching enough people that, uh, you know, uh, is not uh, reaching the most people uh, uh, people that need it the most well it's net family income everywhere from hundred thousand down so i I get why people think that those uh cutoffs uh, seem to be pretty high that's a a significant amount of money to be bringing in the house a hundred thousand and up to a hundred fifty thousand i guess the thing there is how do you really have a fair measure of what what amount of money people have left after they pay their bills because we know what goes on for the most part household savings are way down household debt is way up so someone may indeed be bringing in $105,000 a year and they still owe their credit card $20,000 they still have their line of credit maxed out they still have maybe uh, cash in some of their investments so just saying that someone brings in a lot of money doesn't mean they have any money unfortunately I know that to be true yeah well they're going by their their, uh, their lifestyle but that's uh, right the, the 34 Four thousand dollar a year household is uh, can't afford the lifestyle that the uh, the 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 household has got from hundred to hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, my point is, how do you how do you put some sort of system in place where you can understand that just because I have fifty thousand dollars doesn't mean that I have any money? For some in some cases, that's the, the that's the tricky part of trying to put a means test on these things because I know if you're bringing in thirty four thousand dollars a year on a fixed income, the struggle is real. I don't even know how some people make ends meet, to be honest with you, but it's also quite clear that people earn maybe. Uh, 10% more than that or 50% or 100% more than that still might be struggling mightily. I don't know how we try to help yeah, everyone yeah. equitably. And I agree. They might be. But they have the opportunity to adjust their lifestyle a little bit to 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 save a little more and to uh, cut some of the the, the the fat off, we say. Yeah. Whereas the $34,000 household don't have anything they can cut they're just they're just paying the the beer necessities anyway and they're 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 
uh, surviving, not living. Sure. So, if this know, means that's that, the difference in it. I, I get like, that. Let's say if someone has a, a lifestyle that includes going to the movies once a week and going to a restaurant every weekend and uh, whatever other sort of so-called lavish spending that they have, absolutely, they're going to have to take care of their own affairs. What I think goes on more often than not is that people have, you know, whatever they make for their salary, they've been spending it as quick as it comes in the door. So it might not be cutting off my trip to the restaurant and the movies every week. It might be the fact that all I do with any bit of money beyond my bills is to try to service my debt. Because household, the household debt numbers across the country are unbelievable. The average is $1.88 out for every dollar that comes in. So that's the only point I'm making. Not that people got all this money and shag them if, they're, uh, if they can't cut out their trips to the restaurants and the movies and whatever else they do, then that's their own problem. I think people are just have a debt load that is crushing a lot of families. The numbers are clear. A buck eighty-eight out for every dollar coming in. That's a hard piece of mathematics to keep up isn't it yeah yeah and that's true uh, i i've uh, a couple of years ago i made it up and i couldn't believe it i had more going out than what i had coming in i didn't know how i was surviving but i guess <laughs> it was the uh, the overdraft that was uh, <laughs> that was getting me keeping me going anyway because i'd go, go deep into overdraft and uh, my pensions would come in and i get it paid and then i'm just back in overdraft again so like we got nothing to cost <laughs> we got you know, and that's just paying the necessities. You know, the food, the the the, the utility bills, and uh, putting a bit of gas in the car. Point taken. We, we got to drive. Uh, uh, by the way, we got to go to Cornwall uh, for the, gro- the grocery store. So, you know, there's like we're we're impacted just as much as the one that's uh, relying on just fuel for to eat their own. So, I, I I wanted to make that clear. Like they're not eating. The, the right people and I think the you know their, their, their threshold is too high for the ones that's going to get the one time payment so you know and it's not it and the, the lower ones Appreciate the time this morning, Gus. Thanks for the call. Yeah, thank you, Patty. Take Have a good care. day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, take five here, Dave. Take a break here. Take five. Okay, let's do that. Line five. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi, hi uh, Patty. Look, uh, I want to get some information uh, the, about the, this war with Russia and, and uh, Ukraine. I, understood, uh, I understand that uh, Ukraine used to be a part of... Uh, Russia at one time, but Soviet uh, Union, yeah. So, so they got the, <clears throat> they they got they got their their clear, and uh, probably I I'm not I'm not sure what they what they want to do. They want to stay uh, outside of NATO, and but they they want to uh, uh, be separate from uh, from the Soviet Union or Russia. Right. But now, now they've gotten this trouble. Uh, I, I don't know. I perceive they probably must have changed their mind. And once this uh, this war gets over, once they get a settlement, I I understand now. Uh, if uh, that they, I understand that they 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 want it. They want to uh, go into uh, NATO. That's part of the conversation. Yes, and but people are saying that. Uh, uh, why support Ukraine? You know, if they want to stay, stay by themselves, if they if they, if they didn't, don't want to join NATO, well, why should we support them? I'm not really 100% sure what that means. Um, 
why should we support them and what does that have to do necessarily with NATO? Because I think the end result here will be that Ukraine will be the 33rd member of, of NATO because now we have Finland and Sweden applying to be the 31st and 32nd member. So I, I'm just making sure I, I understand the question. You, well, it seems like it seems like uh, some people are saying that that NATO was uh, uh, Ukraine was asked to join NATO and they refused. Now maybe that, that was that was before the, the, the war began, but now when the war is on, I I understand that they they, they will join NATO once. Uh, I I'm not sure if NATO will take them right now until this is over with. I don't imagine there's going to be a membership drive regarding NATO and Ukraine during the invasion. So I guess the aftermath will tell that particular tale. You know, people are saying, why, why, sh- why should we supporting be be supporting uh, Ukraine and and send and I can especially Canada send them all this money and doing all and getting and and taking them in, uh, you know, uh, as refugees and whatnot. If they if they want to if they don't want to become part of us. But what does NATO have to do with uh, support from the international community? I mean, we would have supported uh, Afghan refugees and Syrian refugees, yes. so uh, Somalia, Somalian refugees. So I'm not sure what the NATO issue has to do with the fact that people are running for their lives looking for somewhere to go. I, I, I don't think, uh, well, if, if, they don't, if they don't want to, to join NATO, and, and, but they're looking, they're looking for help, you know, they're almost telling us what to do, telling uh, the, those, like, uh, I'll take, uh, especially in the case of Canada, what Canada is doing to help them out, but they, they you know, uh, when, once, they, once they get the chance to join NATO, they refuse. And and if they had been in NATO, probably this this wouldn't have happened. But they didn't know that. But now they know what Russia is doing to them, and and to to get protection from uh, from uh, from NATO through NATO. Uh, you know, once this war is over, I've. I've People are thinking. I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's right or not, but uh, uh, they're they're refusing to. Uh, some people say they're they're refusing to join NATO, or or uh, I think that's what they must be talking about. Uh, they're not going to join Canada. No. But, uh, you know, to join NATO, if they want to stay by themselves, if they, if they want us to protect them, they go into NATO, and then they 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 will get uh, get whatever protection is available. Is that right? No. Um, it starts with Russia, not Ukraine. Um, so NATO's not going to take Ukraine in any time in the very near future. That's how the stories are read. Anyway. Um, but the issue regarding NATO starts with Putin and Russia. He wanted guarantees from the West that Ukraine would not join NATO. And yeah. when those uh, guarantees were not offered, that's when, I guess, the final decision or as part of the equation as to how and why the Russians invaded their their neighbor. Yeah. So it's not about Ukraine said we refuse. It's about Putin said he needs guarantees that won't happen. They're kind of two different things. Yes. But... Uh, uh Actually, we're talking what what people what what seems to be the the issue is that is that we're supporting the, uh, Ukraine now, uh, you know, uh, we're right. supporting Ukraine because they 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 they're in trouble. 
But once once the war is over, and 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 they get the chance to uh, uh, become part of NATO, NATO, they refuse. And that doesn't seem uh, to be right. If that is the case on the part of Ukraine. But we don't know what the future holds and whether or not they'll apply, be accepted or otherwise. We can only deal with what we understand today, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some people um, are saying, you know, we're, we're throwing everything everything uh, in, in uh, uh, Ukraine's uh, help to help them. But uh, and and people are saying that we 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 have we have people in in Canada. Canada has people that needs help too. But they, but they are they're sending the help to U- Ukraine. Once once this is over, uh, okay. Ukraine Ukraine should be should be allowed, you know, or, or they should if they get the op- opportunity to to join NATO to 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 get protection. If they had if they're in NATO now, this this wouldn't have been happen, happening, but or it might have happened sooner. Yeah, you, you know? know, because that's always been the Russian concern is that the Ukraine or Ukraine would be part of NATO. So had that membership application and conversation being happening five years ago maybe the invasion would happen five years ago like it happened in 2014 so anyway uh i think i understand the concern but i appreciate the time anything else quickly before i have to go no that's 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 the issue uh you know i i i understand that uh ukraine has has uh, refused uh, the option to join nato no nato said no so I, uh, I see. Yeah, it, it wasn't NATO went to Ukraine and said we want you to be a member state at all, knowing full well what the risks were. Ukraine had floated many times publicly that they would be interested in joining the defensive alliance that is NATO. Yeah. NATO, Ukraine didn't say no. NATO basically said no. The formal application process process never happened first or last. Oh. But NATO wasn't interested at the time, knowing that it posed a serious risk for military action from Russia. Yes. So that's more what happened versus what I think you're saying happened. But they... they, they okay, they I do have to go. Last time you can say it. Go ahead. They, you know, they're having trouble with Russia now. So, you know, once they get... If they can get this, this over with, then they, they, they should, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they should join NATO. Uh, then, uh, okay. You know... Uh, fair enough. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We won't take and give you a short shrift here so we get some time to talk about whatever's on your mind. But just in relation to, uh, to an email I just got, the, the basics of it are, why don't I talk about the upside of cryptocurrency? Um, all right. A couple of things. I don't know much about it. And the email also went on to say that, you know, not doing enough to talk about the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. Well, we've talked about it a few times here on the show. We've had three of the candidates on the program live to talk about their policy positions and why they think that they're the best candidate to be the next leader of the CPC. But I think most importantly inside of all that is it's hard for me to understand exactly what people want to talk about. There's some of the real hot-button issues that are quite obvious, and they are worthy, uh, and they require public discourse and, and conversation. But if there's something you don't think you hear enough of or you want to hear it broached in full or in part, 
please do it indeed. Uh, call the show and do that. Because if that's a major concern for you, is talking about whatever candidate that would like to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, we're game. We're happy to talk about that and whatever else under the sun. And there's also the inference in the email, which it was a bit of a strange one, but is that we refuse to talk about the federal vaccine mandate. Like, again, not to be too mean or, or rude, but Q-tip time is probably, uh, you know, advisable. I've talked about it so much that I got myself in trouble with some longtime supporters of the program who think that it's ludicrous to even talk about the timeliness, the effectiveness, or the requirement to have any vaccine mandates remain in place. Because at this point, it's not accommodating or uh, it's not accomplishing a whole lot. Certainly, if the thought behind the mandate was to get more and more Canadians vaccinated, well, that tale has been told. People are, are or not and will never be uh, willing to go get the vaccine. So unless they change the definition, then I think that's just kind of the end of that conversation. That's why we have talked about it plenty of times, despite the reference in the email that we're afraid to talk about that issue because we're not. We're happy to talk about whatever you like. All right, Sean, you're in the queue to talk about Marine Atlantic. And then lots of time left after the newscast to speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line one. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great. Thank you for asking. How are you? That's good. I'm good. Uh, calling about Marine Lanny again. Uh, last time I talked to you, you had a deadline for May 1st of us going in rooms, commercial drivers going back into rooms, and they canceled it. And now they're starting again June 1st. Uh, we're going back into rooms. I don't know. Did you watch the uh, NTV article there last week about it? Don Bradshaw did a story about it. Annette? No, I didn't see it. Okay, and uh, he talked to uh, Daryl Mercer, the communication guy, and a couple of the points that he brought up I want to clarify. Uh, first of all, I listened to your preamble, and your preamble basically talked about what we're concerned about, is in the last 25 to 30 years, the amount of crime in the, our society has changed in the last 25 to 30 years. You you even said it that crime has gone up, handguns have gone up, you know, violent crimes is on the rise, you know, and now they're asking drivers that because we drive similar vehicles, got the same job to share rooms with strangers, you know, it's and and they and Daryl Mercer said that they done consultation with the trucking company. Yes, yeah, 25 to 30 years ago they did, and back then it was okay to share rooms with strangers, you know, you know we, we were all you know pretty much knew each other we uh were from newfoundland nova scotia you know if you knew pretty much each other this day and age we got drivers coming in from u.s western canada these drivers are moving in from into canada from all over the world and getting jobs driving which all the power to them i got no issue with them but for marine line to say you got to share a room just because you drive a vehicle a similar vehicle and stuff like that it's it's you know it's not right you know what I mean? Well, I suppose I do. But how do they, you know, given the fact they're on limited capacity, and if I'm traveling with my family, how do we have individual non-commercial passengers be in this so-called forced share a room versus, you know, when you have truck drivers? Generally speaking, I don't think many truck drivers drive with a companion. Maybe some do. I really don't know. But we know that they will, by and large, be individuals, which makes it manageable. How would you juggle it differently? Uh, well, some of the recommendations we came up with is 
Uh, right now, with the number of capacity of uh, what we call tourism, which you're talking about, uh, most of what we're getting on a boat is 25 to 30 trucks. So what we're saying is guarantee 25 to 30 rooms for us and put 25 to 30 trucks on there. Rest go to, uh, to the uh, tourism and go from there. And, yes, uh, if we had to pay double price for it, you know, uh, because they always say well, they're, they're leaving a few rooms to upgrade, which is good. But if you're one of the first four or five to upgrade, what, what happens to the rest of the guys? And so if I'm the last one to get on the boat, I don't know anybody on there. I can't upgrade. You know, I'm stuck out in the cold. Either I have to go share a room with a stranger or I have to stay outside and sleep in a chair. So, so we're saying just guaranteed 30 rooms for the commercial drivers. Double the price if you got to, or charge us whatever they got to, and put us in a room. And as you just said, is if you have a fan, okay, if you got uh, your you, you and your wife is going there, and you want a room, we said, well, sorry, we don't have no rooms left, but we have a room there with another couple. You're more than welcome to go in and share a room with them. Would you do that? You know what I mean? I don't know, but I, I would imagine Marine Atlantic, uh, and I'm just taking a couple of wild guesses here. I don't know exactly the rationale behind closed doors as to why they came up with this policy. But for the truckers, that's your option. If you have to come across from North Sydney, Marine Atlantic is the only game in town. If I'm a member of the traveling public and I have options available, if I feel like I have uh, absolutely no opportunity to have my own room or being so-called forced to share a room, that would be someone who will not travel Marine Atlantic because they have a choice. As opposed to you as a truck driver, you don't have one. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You just said, right there in a nutshell, our argument is, and last time you made a comment that really got me upset, and I didn't catch on to it till after the fact. What was that? You, you said that uh, because we kept uh, the industry going during COVID, we're asking for treatment now. We're actually not asking for special treatment now. We're asking for it to be treated like everybody else. But because we don't have a choice we have to go on marine atlantic they are accommodating tourism not the trucking industry not the services yep that's pretty much what i just said yep and you you said it in a nutshell and that's been our argument from day one and and we all we want is to be treated like everybody else give the same treatment as everybody else is getting we're not asking for special treatment we're asking for her to be treated the same as everybody else. Uh, last night, I was at the ferry in Port of Bass. Uh, I had to wait because there were two more vehicles that had reservations to get on the boat. It wasn't there yet. It was like 11 o'clock, 10 after 11. If a commercial truck had came in that late, it probably wouldn't have got put on the boat. But because it's a tourism mandate or, you know what I mean, they're trying to support tourism, they waited for that person to get in there at quarter after 11 before they close it up. You know, you know what I mean? This, this is the argument we're having with Marine Atlantic. The Marine Atlantic is supposed to be an extension after Trans-Canada Highway. As, as we consider it. Yeah, would, would a late truck also have anything to do with uh, how the trucks are, how and where the trucks are loaded on? Sorry, say that again. So if uh, if a truck arrives late, does that also have something to do with how and where trucks are loaded into the vessel? Uh, yes. 
Okay. Oh, yes, it, it does. I mean, and, and actually, the kind of truck that you drive has it also has a where you load on. Uh, if you have a step deck, low deck trailer, you have to go on the first floor where a reefer, like I have to drive, you know, that hauled uh, uh, frozen product or a refrigerator yeah. product, I have to go on the top deck because I have a reefer run and they don't want it down in the enclosed part of the boat. That all is, a, is affected by the ship and the design of the ship and that, right? But like I said, like I said, it's just a mentality at Marine Atlantic. Is when it comes to summertime, uh, we're put in the back boat burner. Uh, last during the weekend, Friday and Saturday, uh, the boats were shut down due to wind. Right now, there is a backlog of trucks in North Sydney because when the first boat went out, they filled it up with cars with tourism and the trucks had to wait their turn because we're, we're this is another thing i don't think people understand this when when we coming to uh into north sydney uh we're on what they call an open booking first come first serve uh people say well book reservations well they only allow five reservations per boat and that's double the price. Right now, I pay $735 to get on the boat. If I want to book a reservation on that boat with my vehicle, it's going to cost me about $1,250. And they only take five of them per crossing. So n- not everybody can get them. Right? So we're put in, in the waiting list, in the lineup, to get aboard that boat where a tourism vehicle comes in and just drives right on. And this is the mentality of Marina Lightyear. This is part of the argument we've had with them. Over the last, since I've been driving across the Gulf 10, 12 years, and I've heard other drivers go on longer with them uh, saying this. But right now is, okay, uh, I'm getting off topic again, sorry. My, well, I, if I remember correctly, you said a few other choice things to me last time you called, too. Yes, and I would apologize. And like I said, why, why I got off topic last time was, like I said, and I apologize for that, was the comment you made, and I don't think you made the comment uh, I think it was just a lack of knowledge of Marine Atlantic system. I think it was probably a question uh, that you took uh, offense to, and that's fine, and that's the uh, tricky uh, thing. Uh, uh, pro- probably was. Yeah, you're right. I agree. Yeah, so, I mean, and it's listen, no skin off my back. It, I'm just yeah. recalling now what the, one of the going away <laughs> comments you yeah. blasted me with. But anyway, yeah, yeah so, like, if I ask a, a question like that, why would I possibly have any inkling as to want to insult a guy who I don't know who's driving a truck, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I just don't even know what would motivate me to say anything. Uh, it's like, look at this. We've been at this, and, and, and this is the issue, and I guess, and that's where I went off topic was, We've been doing this, and we've been having this fight with Marine Atlantic for the longest time now. And it's only in the, actually in the last couple of weeks that I've been able to talk to anybody. Like, you call up Marine Atlantic, you can't get to talk to anybody. You call up the customer service number. Actually, I called there Friday morning, and the customer 1-800 number, which they tell you, if you have an issue, call customer service. You call customer service, and they say, well, uh, all we can do is take the message. We don't know nothing. We just hand it on to somebody else. And, and hardly ever gets like, – you can't get to talk to anybody. This, this is a problem we've had in Marine Atlantic for a while, communications. And this is why I think the comment you made kind of 
uh, triggered a, a something into me. And uh, like I said, I apologize for going off on that. That's okay. But, no apology required. It's all good. Yeah. Um, so, Sean, I appreciate yeah, but, the time. Next time we get a chance to speak with Mr. Mercer here, because inevitably we will get a check in on bookings for the tourism season, what have you. I'm happy to ask him about this. No problem. Yeah, and like I said, that was what I called in for. Mr. Mercer was on NTV News making a lot of comments. And all his comments had to do with what was going on 25, 30 years ago, which at the time nobody had an issue with. But what we're saying now, and you you just said it in your preamble, is times have changed. And asking us to do what we did 25 or 30 years ago, it's not fair to ask us to do it now. It's just it's not safe. And one of the comments he made was, another comment he made was, uh, there has been no issue on the Marine Atlantic. Yes, there has. It's just we don't come down crying to the persons in behind the desk every time we have an issue in a room with another driver or anything like that because there's nothing they can do about it. So why do we come down crying about it every time we have a little argument with another driver? We just deal with it on our own. But there has been issues. And I think it's going to get worse before, you know, and, and this is what we're trying to say is because of the society we're in now, mm-hmm. it's just not safe to have strangers in rooms together. It's just, and I don't want it to be someone to get hurt to change their mind. We should change, like, society has changed. Just change our way of thinking before somebody gets hurt because I think if, if the way it keeps going, I think someone will get hurt eventually, and then it's you know it's too late for that person that do get hurt. I appreciate the time, morning, Sean. Safe travels. All right, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye bye. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. We're going to go back. Wayne's in the queue to talk about whatever's on his mind, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Oh, welcome back. Let's go. Line number two, Wayne. You're on the air. Good day, Patty. How you doing? I'm doing okay today. How you doing? That's great, Patty. You're sounding good. Always good to hear your voice on the program. Happy anyway, to be here. A couple of things on my mind today. Uh, a little over a week ago, you were talking to a lady who had some affiliation with, I think, municipalities in Newfoundland, and she was pretty uh, vociferous in her praise of municipal councils and the volunteerism that a lot of councillors display. And uh, to a great extent, I, I agree with that, but I, I also want to highlight the fact that there's a there's a great possibility that many of those people that are on municipal councils are there out of their own interests as much as the community interest. And I think we should all think about that because it has sometimes some negative uh, consequences for the taxpayers. And uh, I'll go back again to the case that I know best, which is the, the town of Terranova, where when they introduced the property tax, they introduced the version that was called minimal tax under the municipality's legislation. Okay. And as a consequence of that, 80% of the councillors uh, really ended up uh, having having the benefit of reduced tax on them. And what I'm getting at is the way taxes are applied in Terranova, the higher value your property has, the lower is your effective mill rate, which seems to be upside down to what most people understand property tax system to work like. And uh, just to give you an example, I guess if you live in Terranova and you own a $350,000 cottage, you pay 
$350 municipal tax. But if you live in Terranova and your cottage is valued at seventy-five or 80000 you also pay $350 tax. So, you know, as a, as a, it's a flat tax system, and I don't think it should be called property tax because it really has no – the tax you pay has absolutely no connection to the value of your property. So how is that a property tax system that it's not. most people in Newfoundland understand? Yeah, basically it's not. Uh, property tax is a pretty clear regressive form of taxation. Whatever the mill rate is chosen by the sitting council in conjunction with my appraised value comes up with the property tax. If we're simply talking about a cover charge or a residency tax or whatever label they'd like to put on it, that's more what you're talking about in Terranova. Yes, and if you took the total revenue from so-called property tax and divided by the number of taxable properties there or the value total value i mean of the taxable properties you end up with an effective average mill rate about two and a half mills but there are properties there that are paying 0.7 mills you know and the people who have the lowest value or lower value properties and that represents 40 percent of the properties there they're mill rate can go anywhere from three and a half to five and a half mills so it's an upside down tax system and as it turned out 80 percent of the members of council at the time benefited from that system of taxation rather than a straight on property tax system now the other consequence of this is just one second before you go any further so the floating or fluctuating mill rate is that anything to do with residential versus industrial versus commercial or is it all just some sort of weird floating metric it's a weird floating metric i think i would class it as as it doesn't vary really from their point of view everybody pays what they call the same tax and they said this is the fairest way to do it which is to say that property tax in every other community where street property taxes applied are being unfair, I guess, to their citizens. So if so it's just other, a flat rate, what does mill rate have to do with it first or last? Well, what the, if, you, if you're calling it, well, let me just back up a little. If your property is valued at greater than $500,000 or 500000 or more, you are assigned the mill rate. Oh. As it turns out, it's 0.7 mills. But if your property is valued at less than that, you pay a straight tax. Okay. $350. What I'm getting at is this, really, that is it a property tax system or isn't it? They claim it's a property tax system, and here's a byproduct of it. Because they class it as a property tax system, each year the uh, municipal assessment agency does an evaluation of all the properties at a cost of $6,000 to the community. But why do you need to pay that is my question if you're not using the, the value of the properties as the basis for your taxation anyway? Yeah, I guess we can quibble about what they call it, but it's just sort of strange setup to begin with. And the concept of someone willing to run for office, whether it be municipally, provincially, federally, and has their own agenda and their own personal benefits associated with their office, that's always going to be the way. It's unfortunate. It's not ideal, but it's always going to play some sort of role. And that's, you know, that's where we don't have enough recusals. 
from decision making and that I think happens in a variety of communities and I'm not saying anybody was completely only in it for themselves in certain one town or another but I mean we don't even have a council and come by chance right and we've had other communities where we've seen this issue being spoke to quite clearly is that allegations of conflict of interest which I guess is what is ultimately the case when you talk about one individual or another that has a financial or personal upside to one decision so yeah well there's lots of things that go on in life Patty, that applies to you know people in governance and so on where there could be you know some issue like that but there's provisions you know called the conflict of interest where you can back yourself out of but if you're in a municipal council there's that, uh, that brings in a property tax, there's also a way to avoid being uh, seen as acting in your own interest, and that is to secure the services of an independent body who can look at what you're trying to accomplish here and make some recommendations as to how to do it. Yeah, and an emailer just gave me the word that I was searching for in my poor old adult brain. You're paying a poll tax. I called it a residency tax or what have you, a cover charge. Yeah, it's, it's a poll tax as much as it is anything else. Thanks a lot, Jerry. I could not get that word out of my brain no matter how hard I tried. Anyway. Yeah, but, Patty, they were all all encouraged by the Department of Municipal Affairs to rid themselves of the poll tax. Effectively, what the, what the gentleman is saying is, is true, effectively. But, I mean, there's all kinds of twists and turns in the way taxes are brought in out there. For example, I own two properties in Terranova that's combined value of $180,000. I pay $700 a year tax. But an individual who owns a $575,000 property only pays 0.7 mils on that, so we're paying about $600. So the fairness of it, I think I'm having some real difficulty with. And I know people there that have a cottage they haven't used in a number of years, paying $350. And I, I guess if the property is worth $50,000, that would all be in the land, not in the land and building itself. So it is unfair to 46% of the taxpayers in Terranova and overly fair to the other 54%. And to call a property tax is really... A stretch, I believe, and poll tax is closer to what it is, and that's what it's always been. But, you know, they have some peculiar things out there, and in my view, municipal affairs, and I'm going to have a little, write a little letter to the minister. I think it needs a complete overview on how things are done there in the village of Terranova by a so-called independent body. That is, if we can find somebody in municipal affairs that can claim to be and show themselves to be independent. And what they should do is call a public meeting out there so that all of the people who see things as not quite going the way it should go, so they can stand up and have their say in a public meeting. Always a good idea. Wayne, I'm late for the news, but I appreciate the time. Patty, I always appreciate the time and good talking to you, and uh, take care. You too, Wayne. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. All right, there we go. Uh, it is time for the news. When we come back, Tom's in the queue. He wants to talk about cost of living, and that's as wide as it is broad. We'll see what Tom has to say after this. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number three. Tom, you're on the air. Yes, uh, how are you doing today, Patty? Doing okay, Tom. How about you? I, I, I have better days. 
be honest with you. Now, I'm renting a house now off of my, well, was my uh, mother and father's house. The, my brother sold it. Anyway, I got caught on my social assistance. I can't work. I was in a bad uh, accident years and years ago. I say back in 2015, I dislocated my shoulder, dislocated my hip, and I had four ribs broken and my glasses went into corner of my eye and now I'm getting $91 every two weeks now how can any man live on that I have no earthly idea no I guarantee you but only for my family I wouldn't be able to live you know, the price of gas and the price of fuel and and the price of groceries has gone up like you wouldn't believe. And I'm going to tell you no word of a lie. It's got to be, I've been in contact with uh, Ottenheimer. What's her name? Helen? Helen? Helen Ottenheimer? Helen Conway Ottenheimer out yeah, in Harbour, Maine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been in contact with her. And no, she never contacted me back yet. This is going on almost three months. Okay. Tom, how did you get cut off? What happened? Because I, I, my my brother owned a house. Well, it was left to him, not left to him. We signed our house off to him, and he took over the payments, whatever it was anyway, and he sold it. And these people who bought the house, they let me rent the house off them, and... Everything is all done, surveyed, the whole works, light builders looked after. But anyway, I got caught. I don't know why I got caught. Did you gain financially off anything to do with the home? Pardon? Did you gain financially with whatever went on with that house? Well, I never got nothing out of it. Anyway, the, the way I look at it now, my brother, he had everything done with the house, and I'm here now living by myself, and no word of a lie, and I got a cat, and I owe me good bit of company, and no word of a lie. I can't the reason why they haven't got into my files and say why I got caught. I got to pay half the rent. Yeah, well, until you have some sort of understanding as to how and why you got cut off, then it's hard to even know where to go from there. So how long have you been no. trying to reach uh, Miss uh, Conway Ottenheimer? I say about a month, or okay. maybe two months. I'm not sure why she wouldn't be able to... Uh... All I got was the secretary. Okay. Now, I'm sure right. the members get an awful lot of requests, but that's a long time to wait for some action. Yeah. So what about inside the department itself, not just your member? What about the department? Do they give you any explanation, or simply you were told you were cut off and that was it? That was it. Hmm. So the way I look at it now, it's time for someone to do something for me. I know people who never worked a day in their life, and they're going around with new cars, and here I am, broke up with a, a, a dislocated shoulder. I got to go in now for maybe surgery on the 28th of, uh, no, 29th of July, and I they, they might have to uh, fuse in my spine in my back. Boy, oh boy. Well, I hope whatever procedure you get works out, but it would be nice if you could get an explanation as to how and why you were cut off from any of these supports, because until you know that, then you start to even know what questions to ask next. So yeah, hopefully sure. hopefully someone's listening in Miss uh, Conway Ottenheimer's office and can yeah. get back to Tom. Do you want to give your last name so they can chase that in their own files? Yep. 
Roach. Okay, Tom Roach it is. I knew it. I just wanted to give you the chance to say it. Okay, Not yeah, me. no problem, buddy. Listen here. I listen to you every morning from 9 to noon, and no word of a lie. I even listen to you from Monday to Friday, and I listen to you in the nighttime. Well, I'm glad that you're supporting the program, Tom. I really do appreciate that. And hopefully, fingers crossed, you get a, a call from her office today. Let me know okay. how it works out. Okay, God bless you. Anyway, you have a good day now. You too, Tom. Okay, take care. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Yeah, call back again, like we say all the time. It might not be the answer people want, but an answer is helpful. Let's go to line number five. Ernest, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. You? Yeah, just um, want to talk about the fishery here for a little bit. Patty, we we were into into a meeting near the spring. Talk about the lobster fishery, actually. And uh, we had our annual meeting with the FFAW. So anyway, we're talking about the lobster fishery. So we were partly through the meeting here, and FFAW said that they were going to bring in two cents a pound on lobsters for 2023 if the fish harbors had went along with it. So that would be the West Coast, Northern Peninsula, this in this case. But the two cents would be for all over the island if fish harvesters went along with us. But anyway, nobody said anything at this meeting, and a number of other meetings, they, they didn't say anything. They didn't agree, or they, did, they didn't say anything at these meetings. So they had a number of meetings on the West Coast Northern Peninsula, I, I hear. So well, anyway, having said that, they brought, that, brought it in this year. They brought it in full swing this year. So they take two cents a pound this year from every lobster that I sell. This is the FFAW takes two cents a pound? Yes. It okay, is. I'm just making sure we know what we're talking about, or I know what so, you're talking about. But it wasn't even, wasn't even, but they said in the meeting, they said it would be scrapped if fish harbors just never went along with it. So anyway, as far as I'm concerned, nobody went along with that. So. So, and, uh, but it went along anyway, so, so I don't know. So. It looks like uh, the market's pretty strong for lobster. I hear a lot of lobster harvesters all across Atlantic Canada are pretty bullish about the year. I know the lobster at the wharf in Nova Scotia was fetching a massive price. What are we getting here? Yeah, we're getting around $8 a pound now, Patty. $8 a pound for lobster. Yeah, I heard it hovered around 8 to 10 bucks, and maybe another seven eight dollars per pound being uh, bought at the wharfs in nova scotia which is always frustrating i would imagine for lobster fishermen that's right yeah but anyway patty i i just just like for you to get someone on probably from from fmw to talk about that or so are they collecting the two cents or because the industry was opposed they they said in the meeting they want to do some science project here (laughs) (laughs) that's what i said they said they were in the meeting but anyway you know, the lobster fishery is the only lucrative fishery that we got on the west coast of Northern Peninsula. Our, our, our ground fish stocks has pretty well collapsed, right? I think, I honestly think that they should be working very, very hard with the federal minister to to rebarrel our ground fish stocks here in the Gulf, uh, you know, because they're, they're not in very good condition. If, if we are going to have a viable future for the younger generation of this province, I think, I don't think we have much time to wait on the ground fish stocks. So, well, you know, we all know what's happening. It's the seals, but, but, but we have to, we have to accept the fact that it's the seals and we got to do something about them. So, so, you know, but, you know, we just got to move forward on things. 
Shellfish is remarkable. One of the ground fish stock and uh, many of the species are in what's called or referred to as a critical zone. But the value of, of the shellfish is just unbelievable. Oh, uh, yes, it is. It I is. mean, we know what snow crab looks like this year. Even at the reduced price, landed value is going to be around a billion dollars. Last year, Canada set a record for lobster exports. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was over $3 billion on lobster lo- lobster exports. That's uh, the national number. There was more lobsters landed. There was record prices for it. Okay. So, and I believe that was somewhere in the neighborhood of seven or eight hundred million dollars than it was in 2020. So yes. there's big money to be made in the shellfish. Yes, I was going to say, Patty, you know, we, we sell our lobsters. Our lobsters are sold here in Newfoundland, but they go in in the American market. We get 70% of the Boston market for lobster, right? But right now, we don't, a lot of our lobster is not even, is going to, going to Europe, right, and other countries. We don't really know if we're getting a fair price for our lobsters or not, although it's a good price, but, you know, we don't know if we should be getting more from them or not. But uh, uh, a lot of them is going into European countries, like China and whatever, right, China? So, and, uh, and you know, all the other countries over there, right? Yeah, we send a lot of our lobster into New Hampshire, Massachusetts in particular. I think a lot of them leaves there and goes, goes worldwide, eh? Could be. I really don't know. Yeah, I don't really know. So I guess I guess we, we're going gonna to have to find that out in the future, right? So, well, anyway, I'd like, I'd like to see someone come on your show and listen, you know. And I'll it, find out about it, the two cents. It, that much it, I can it, do. It was a bit early to spring it on to us, you know, because the fishermen didn't say too much because Patty, because they, they said, well, they did talk about it in 2023. But the Airdale Smack is in for 2022, you know, right? So it's kind of us out of the blue. So we're going to end up paying, you know, probably four or $500 more a year to the FFW, right? So, so that's when we know. So we're already paying 380 a year, every fish harvester, you know, 9,400 fish harvesters. So that works out to three and a half million, the lower three and a half million dollars, right? So. Yeah. I'll follow up on the two cents. That much I can definitely do, Ernest. Okay. Thank you very much. You have a nice day. You too, sir. All the best. Yeah, bye. Bye. Yeah. I mean, the lobster fishery is a weird one, too, right? Because it's always quite curious that decades ago, it was the poor crowd ate lobster, <laughs> right? Now it's a delicacy. So in 2020, there was a pretty soft market because of the obvious. Some of the places where you would have seen a lot of lobster being eaten would have been on cruise ships and uh, the big buffets at the casinos and those types of things. And of course, they were all shuttered for the most part. So the market took a bit of a beating. But the resurgence in 2021 was massive. You know, well over $3 billion, if I remember correctly, lobster exports from Canada to a variety of places in the world. All right, uh, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, Dave, well, what happened to Paul? He was uh, in the queue to talk about Ronnie Hawkins. So I, I'm sure you probably heard the sad news by now. Ronnie Hawkins, the king of rockabilly, born in Huntsville, Ar- Arkansas, spent most of his life in Ontario, and of course, one of the real kings of rock and roll in this country. Not only with his own career, he died at the age of 87, not only his own career, but recruited and mentored some of the most famous musicians on the face of the earth, the Bob Dylan's world, members of the band, and Hawkins now dead at 87. Uh, We were trying to figure out amongst a few of us 
how many times and when Ronnie Hawkins actually played here, of course, affectionately known as the Hawk. And maybe 97, 98, he was here and played at the Arts and Culture Center. But if you happen to know a bit more about how many times where Ronnie Hawkins would have played here, there's a couple of people that have been in my ear asking for that kind of information today. And I'm not really 100% sure. So the Hawk is the great nickname, but Rompin' Ronnie. Uh, the hits that he had, curiously, some of them were covers. Chuck Berry's, uh, what was it called, 30 Days, I think he retitled it to call it 40 Days. And then uh, Mary Lou, of course, a song about a gold digger. Mary Lou was one of the Ronnie Hawkins hits. But, of course, uh, Bo Diddley, Dave just uh, whispered in my ear, you're absolutely right. So it uh, goes on to say that he recruited not only members of the band, Robbie Lane and the Disciples, uh, the Full Tilt Boogie Band, just Janis Joplin's backing band, so, of course, his career was extraordinary. Member of the Order of Canada as well is and was Ronnie Hawkins. Pretty cool, great voice, and, of course, a true legend of rock and roll here in Canada. So, rest in peace, Ronnie. I guess we should play some Hawkins on the way out as opposed to any more Betty Davis eyes, which we played by from Kim Carnes earlier today. Okay. There's a couple of emails that are really quite cross that we were talking about any of the Stats Canada numbers regarding firearms and the incidents of gun violence in the country. This is not to paint the picture that it's uh, port of prince but, you know, when we have some issues like that, it's worthwhile talking about what we hear and see, especially when the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary is drawing very clear links between some of the most recent gun and knife violence here that is between two criminal networks. I mean, they've met an arrest of a 20-year-old man, and they've drawn pretty clear links where how it first started with some random shots being fired into a parked car, to a stabbing on George Street, to a shoot-em-up at an apartment building, and the fellow who was arrested, that's his home, so I guess his arrest is in relation to the stabbing on George Street, a firebombing and shooting on a street here in the east end of St. John's. So it's not about, oh my God, don't be afraid, don't leave your house because you're going to get shot. No one says that kind of stuff. We're just trying to talk about what's actually in the news. Then if you add in the story that I don't think got any attention, that the RNC had confiscated 120 illegal firearms and three printing devices last week while all of this stuff was unfolding, beginning on the 13th of May and now has culminated with this one arrest and, I suppose, more arrests quite likely given that it takes at least two to tango. The fellow who has been arrested is going to appear in front of a judge, my understanding is, tomorrow. And we'll know more about the specific charges, even though I think it's uh, assault with a deadly weapon, I think is one of the charges that I read this morning. So we can tackle that if we're so inclined. Uh, let's see. We're checking in on the Twitter one final time here today. We're a VOCM open line. You know what to do. You can follow us there and make uh, comments on what you hear, suggest uh, guests on the program. What do you want out there, Jocko? One of, one of the boys in sales is making a request. Is he, Dave? John O'Keefe, one of the sales guys here, has made a Ronnie Hawkins request to polish off the show. So we'll do exactly that, because Jacko, you're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, song requester, John O'Keefe, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.